So we're back in Genesis. We are on Genesis chapter 18 this morning. Back in uh, Genesis chapter 12, when we started with Abraham, Abraham was uh, 75 years old. God told Abraham that he, God, would make of him, Abraham, a great nation. And later in that same chapter, uh, God told Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. Right? In order to be a great nation, you need people. Uh, how do you get people? You need offspring, right? In order to have offspring, you need a child. So God promised Abraham a child. And God reaffirmed that promise with Abraham in chapter 13 by telling him that his offspring would be as the dust of the earth. And then in chapter 14, he tells him that his offspring would be as like the stars in the sky, basically saying that his offspring would be so great there'd be too many that you can't even count them. I mean, even if you could try, you, would just, you wouldn't be able to, right? But Abraham brings up a good point to God. He says, but... I have no offspring, right? I continue childish, childless, childish, right? Well, that too. I'm, I'm childish. Well, I know, right? But I'm childless, right? He says, my heir is, is one of my servants. And God said, no, he will not be your heir. Your own son will be your heir. And it said that Abraham believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this doesn't mean that Abraham had perfect faith or that Abraham was perfect in all his ways from here on out, right? Obviously not. Abraham believed God that he would have a son, but he didn't know exactly or grasp exactly how that was going to happen, right? Or when exactly it was going to happen. I mean, as time goes by and Abraham continues to get older and older, Right? And here, now he's closer to 100 years old. And as we saw in last chapter, when the Lord appears to Abraham again, you, know, you have, the, you have the, the, the thought there that maybe Abraham starting, started doubting that it would ever happen. Right? That maybe God had forgot. So last chapter in Genesis 17, when God Almighty appears to Abraham and reaffirms his promise with Abraham again and lets him know, he hasn't forgotten. Right? He tells Abraham that he will give him a son by Sarah. Right? In Genesis 17, he says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And what was Abraham's response to that? He fell on his face and laughed. Right? He fell on his face and laughed. And laughed. God said, and God re, restates it right after Abraham starts laughing, right? Well, let me just retell you what I just told you that you're laughing about, right? Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Isaac in Hebrew is Yitzhak, and it means he laughs. And so it shows that God has a sense of humor. God named him Isaac. Right? Knowing already that when he told Abraham of this, 
Abraham's going to laugh. Knowing that when Sarah finds out about this, Sarah's going to laugh. He just names the son laughter, right? God had a sense of humor. And I told you that Abraham laughing, Abraham was not being blatantly rude or he wasn't being disingenuous, right? When he la- his laughter was not insincere, right? He was just laughing at the miraculous ridiculousness of it all. Right? It was a joyful laugh. Right? He fell on his face and he laughed to himself and he said, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Right? It seemed ridiculous to him. He believed God. He believed God was going to do it. But he had to laugh at the ridiculousness of it. I'm going to be 100 years old and be a father? This is ridiculous. Right? And it would seem then from here on out concerning the birth of Isaac, Abraham was now just waiting patiently and waiting hopefully. He was alert, he was awake, he was sober, right? And he was looking forward to the coming promise. Sarah, however, still needed a little help, right? She needed a little more growth. Remember, Sarah thought the best way for her and Abraham to have a son would be for Abraham to marry her servant Hagar, right? And that led to a whole soap opera of events, right? Feelings were hurt. Arguments ensued. It was a bad choice. God did not need their help. They did not need to help God out on this. So this morning as we step into chapter 18, we're going to see the Lord appear again. This is like the second time in three months, roughly, that he appears to Abraham to remind him of the promise, to reaffirm the promise. And the contrast we're going to see here between Abraham's response and Sarah's response is going to tell us a lot about where they are right now concerning the promise that God has given them. So let's read Genesis 18. We're just going to do the first 15 verses. We'll pick up the rest of chapter 18 in a couple weeks. There's a lot there. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, which is Abraham's address, right? P.O. Box, oaks of Mamre, Abraham in Hebron. It's where he's been since Genesis 13. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant." And so they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and sat the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. 
Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the strength and the power and the encouragement that comes from them. And I pray, Lord, that we can apply this to our hearts, that you speak to us this morning, that your spirit speak to us, that we draw closer to you and understand what we're being told here and how it applies to us and how we can stand in the promises, stand faithfully and secure, patiently waiting for you to fulfill what you've promised and that you will do it. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Abram was a home, right? By the Oaks of Mamre in Hebron. He's been living here since Genesis 13. This is where he's settled, right? And he was sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now, these tents were designed to capture the air that was blowing and naturally cool the interior of the tent. And so he, had a, he was sitting in a great spot because the, the, the wind would come right in through the entrance. But it was also like the proverbial gate of his home, which means, like for us, it would be sitting on the front porch of our house. Right, in the heat of the day. And it says he lifts up his eyes and three men are standing before him. Right? At the beginning of the chapter it says, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Did he just like instantly appear? Just all, I mean, Abraham's sitting there looking out. Part of the reason you sat by the entrance of the tent was to keep an eye out for strangers, was to keep an eye out for animals, was to keep an eye out for things that could you know, be a problem. You would think that if these were coming from afar and they're walking towards him, that, that he would have seen them coming and been ready because hospitality was a big thing, you know, in the culture. But no, it's just like they instantly appeared. Three men, boom, just kind of right in front of Abraham. Just showed right up. It's a great picture of the Trinity. Because as we find out, right, this is Jesus and this is two angels. How do we know it's Jesus and two angels? Well, chapter 19 tells us that the other two men, right, two of the men are angels. And we know it's Jesus because it tells us that the Lord appeared to Abraham. And anytime we have an appearance of God in the Old Testament, a physical appearance of God in the Old Testament, it's Jesus. Why? Well, because the Bible tells us so, right? right? The Bible tells us that no one has ever seen God. Right? It's in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known or declared him. Right? It also tells us in 1 Timothy 6, referring to God. Right? He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in the unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Right? No one has seen God. No one has ever seen God. It says in 1 John 4.12. No one. So if God has appeared in the Old Testament and people are looking at him and seeing him, who are they seeing? Well, they're seeing Jesus, right? We've got to use some logic. If God appears to someone in human appearance in the Old Testament, yet no one has ever seen God, it makes sense then that an Old Testament appearance of God is an appearance of a pre-incarnate Jesus. 
Why do I say that? Because Jesus said that. Right? It's in John 14. It's all through the Gospel of John, quite frankly. Matter of fact, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Which alluded to the fact, to who he was talking to, that possibly he saw Abraham during Abraham's time. And they thought that was ridiculous and blasphemous, and they wanted to kill him. Because he was saying that he was God. But in John 14, the disciples are talking to Jesus, and they say, Lord, show us the Father. Right? It would Show us the Father. It'll be enough for us. Show us the Father. And Jesus replies to them, have I been with you so long and you still not know me? Right? He's talking to Philip. Whoever has seen me, he says, has seen the Father. Right? And it tells us in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So when there is an appearance, a physical appearance of God in the Old Testament, not just an angel, but God, you know the difference when you read the occurrences. It's an appearance of Jesus. Right? So we know that this is Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, and two angels that are with him. Now, Abraham did not know who it was when he was talking to him. Even though God had appeared to Abraham multiple times at this point, he must have looked different every time because he didn't immediately recognize him. He didn't say, hey, the Lord has come to see me again. He didn't immediately recognize him as God. Right Now, he does, you know, he, like I said, he offers the hospitality of his house, which like ancient culture had an extremely strong sense of hospitality to visitors. And by the way, hospitality... Being hospitable, or however you say that, uh, is a requirement for leadership in the church. You know, First Timothy 3, 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Right? So it's, the, it's a requirement for uh, leaders in the church. But it was also possible, hospitality aside, that Abraham was actually waiting, right? That Abraham was expecting someone or something. He didn't know when or where, when it was going to happen, but he knew that God was going to fulfill his promise. He believed God in that, and it would seem that maybe Abraham was living expectantly at this point, right? He immediately knew of the importance of these visitors somehow, even though he didn't know exactly who it was, he thought they were messengers. Possibly he thought they were messengers from the Lord. I mean, if three people all of a sudden just suddenly appear in front of you and you didn't see him coming from afar and you're kind of, whoa, hey, you know there's something important, all right? So he knew there was something important. He was waiting expectantly. He was living with this exciting feeling that something great was going to happen, right? Because when you're expectant, you're ready, right? You ready yourself. And you patiently wait and hope for the expected outcome, which is what he was doing. He was patiently waiting and hoping for the expected outcome of God's promise. At the door to his tent, right? something's going to happen. I don't know when, but I'm going to be ready for it, which is how we're supposed to be living, which is how we're supposed to be living our lives, expectantly waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises, awake, sober-minded, ready at any moment for the Lord. Now look at what Abraham does. I want you to look at his actions, okay? What does it say he did? Well, it says he ran from the tent, right? He didn't just, oh, he's almost 100 years old, right? Oh, 
give me my cane, get my walker, you know, hobbles on out to the three guys. Now, he gets up, he runs from the tent, he bows himself to the earth. That word in the Hebrew is shakah, which is the Hebrew word for worship. It's the first use of it in scripture here in Genesis. Now, he wasn't worshiping them as we think of worship, but he was bowing to them respectfully because, again, he didn't know that this was God in human form. He didn't understand that at the time, but he understood that they were important, right? He refers to him as my Lord, which is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is uh, also just used as a, a, a title of respect for men, right? So, he had respect for them, right? And so he refers to himself as your servant. So I'm here to serve you. He went quickly into the tent to Sarah, right? Quick, Sarah, bake some bread. I don't know how quickly you can make bread cakes, but Sarah, quickly, bake some bread in the tent. Grab the microwave, right? I don't know how you bake. I honestly don't know how she does that in the tent. But, and then from there, he ran quickly to the herd. He tells them to pick out a calf or whatever. It says that they quickly prepared the calf. Again, how quickly can you prepare a calf? Right? And he prepared a meal for them. They sat and ate the meal with him, though they didn't need to. I mean, that's a whole different study on angelology. Is that a word? You know, do, do, do angels need to eat? No. Did Jesus need to eat? No. But did they eat? Yes. Right? So anyway. And then Abraham stood by to serve if needed while they were eating the meal. How long do you think that whole thing took? It probably took easily three to four hours, actually, to get everything prepared. And they patiently sat there and waited for the meal to be prepared. And they, he served them the entire time. And they ate of the meal, and he stood by to serve them as they needed, right? See, I think Abraham knew or thought that they were messengers from God. There was something important about them. I mean, obviously, we know the little tra literal translation of the word angel is messenger, right? And so he was quickly attending to their needs so that he could hear right, the possible providential message that they had for him. Hebrews 13, 2 tells us, do not neglect the show, hospitality of the strangers, right? For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. That's what Abraham was doing, right? He was being hospitable and entertaining angels without even knowing that he was doing that. Because he knew that they possibly had a message from him. It was probably an important message and he wanted to hear what they had to say, right? Maybe Abraham thought this has something to do with the promise, this has something to do with the promise. So Abraham gave to them generously. He gave to them in humility. He served them cooperatively, which means he involved the ministry of others, right? Which is how it's supposed to be done. And he stood by to serve as needed. Now, let's compare Abraham's reaction that we just saw to Sarah's. Where is Sarah? It's interesting to me that these three people that Abraham wasn't really sure who they are, but he knew they were important, seemed to know Abraham, right? Which doesn't seem to phase him at all, but immediately he has this whole meal served. He's serving them. And one of the first things they ask him is, Abraham, where's Sarah? He, his response is, how do you know the name of my wife? Right? Or anything like that. He just, okay, well, my, you know, where's your wife? Where's Sarah? Oh, she's in the tent. Right? The Lord knew where she was, obviously. 
He just wanted to make sure she was listening, right? So he doesn't speak to her directly. He speaks to the head of the household. He's speaking to Abraham, but he does it in a way that Sarah will now pay attention. Abraham, where's your wife? She's in the tent going, oh, he's asking about me, right? Abraham's like, she's in the tent. One could make the argument that the whole reason they stopped by was actually for her sake, was actually for Sarah. You would have thought that Abraham, in the last few months, would have told Sarah what God told him. You're going to have a son. It's not going to be through your servant. You, yourself, are going to give birth to a son. God told me. And his name is going to be Isaac. I don't know. I don't know if Abraham mentioned this to her yet. Abraham, maybe Abraham was a little afraid to bring up the subject. Maybe it's still a sore subject. I'm not sure. Maybe Abraham asked God one thing. Uh, yeah, I, I believe you, Lord. Can you come back and tell that to my wife? Right? Can you come mention that? Can you do that? She's right over there. You go tell her. Right? I don't know. But I think the Lord stopped by for Sarah. Remember, this is Sarah who needs to grow a little in her faith. So he came by to strengthen her faith. And he tells her, I'm going to stop by this time next year. This time next season is another way to translate that. And you're going to have a child. Right? You know, there was this time period where God had been possibly silent for like 13 years with Abraham. Really hadn't said a thing. And now he comes by twice in the last three months, roughly, to repeat his promise to encourage them and to grow their faith, right? Faith comes from a hearing, hearing through the word of God. So, through the word of Christ. So, Sarah, who's old, as it tells us, it continues to remind us that they're old, right? That they're advanced in age, that she's past childbearing age, right? He stops by to reaffirm the promise so she can hear it specifically with her own ears, right? There's a quote that says, you don't stop laughing because you grow older. You grow older because you stopped laughing, Right? You could say, spiritually speaking, that Sarah had stopped laughing, right? Have you heard that quote, laughter is the best medicine? Did you know it was biblical, right? Pretty much anybody you hear talk about how laughter is therapeutic is basing that off of the Bible. And they're basing it off of Proverbs 17:22 that says, a joyous heart is good medicine, right? But a crushed spirit dries up the bones, so any quotes that you read concerning laughter, like Mark Twain, who says that humanity has unquestionably one really effective weapon, and that's laughter, right? Against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand, he says. Or great philosophers like Dr. Seuss, who say things like, from there to here, from here to there, funny things are everywhere, right? That's all based off the Bible that tells us that a joyful heart is good medicine. Laughing is therapeutic. It's good medicine. Sarah didn't know that yet, but she was about to find out. Right? The Lord came, you could say, to make Sarah laugh. She needed to laugh. Job 8.21 says, He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Jesus, when he was teaching the Beatitudes, right? You can read Matthew 5 or Luke chapter 6, said, For those who weep now, 
soon you shall laugh. You could almost possibly think that maybe Sarah was still somewhat in a sense of mourning over the fact that she had never had a child. Everything she had tried really hadn't worked out for her. The Lord came to make her laugh. Abraham's laugh was a joyful laugh when the Lord announced to him that Sarah was going to have a son, right? And his name would be Isaac. Sarah's laugh, however, when she laughs here, it's not quite the same, right? But the Lord came to fill her mouth with laughter. Her laugh was going to be somewhat cynical. When you're dealing with the miraculous, our response often is laughter, right? It can be like Abraham. It's a joyful laugh of disbelief. I can't believe that's going to happen, right? It's not a laugh of unbelief. It's a laugh of disbelief, right? There is a difference between unbelief and disbelief. Unbelief is a rejection of belief. It's a complete absence of belief. It's a refusal to believe. Disbelief is an unwillingness to believe or an inability to believe, right? It seems too absurd to be true. You've heard that, you know, it's too good to be true. That's more disbelief than, than unbelief. Our hearts aren't quite ready to accept it yet. We accept it, but we accept it laughingly. Like, oh, I can't believe that's going to happen, right? So Abraham, right, when he was like, oh, I'm going to be a father at 100 years old, that was a laugh of disbelief. It was a joyful laugh. I can't believe this. But Sarah, when she laughs, she's laughing in unbelief, right? He says, when I return this time next year, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. It says Sarah was listening. And Sarah laughed to herself. Right? Sarah laughed to herself, which means she, in the midst of herself, in her heart, she didn't laugh out loud. She didn't laugh out loud. She laughed to herself. And she says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Right? That's a laugh of unbelief. This isn't going to happen. That's ridiculous, right? Does he think that old Abe and I are still hooking up after all these years? Who is this guy out here? He's crazy. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. And along with that silent laugh of hers was the thought, right, of just unbelief. It's, it's not going to happen. But here is where things change. Because with the next statement, of course, Sarah realizes that the man outside the tent, who she thinks is crazy, isn't a mere man at all. Right? That was possibly God himself. Because what does he say? Why did Sarah laugh? Right? The Lord said to Abraham, again, not directly talking to Sarah yet, he says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Right then, everyone in the camp knew they weren't talking with just some normal person, right? Because all of a sudden, Sarah's inward thoughts, the feelings of her heart were laid bare. He knew exactly what she thought, what she said, the fact that she laughed. And he called her on it. He called her to the carpet. He said, 
why did you laugh? Why? Right? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? He just claimed who, he just stated who he was. Is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then he re- restates what he just said. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. When he says anything too hard for the Lord, that word for too hard is the, is the same word as wonderful that's used in Isaiah 9, 6. Right? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It's the same word. So as he saying, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is there anything that I can't do? Is anything too wonderful? Is there anything too hard for me to overcome? No. Not even your weak faith. Not even your unbelief. Not even your doubts can stop me from doing what I promised. I mean, is it harder for God to cure cancer or to heal a headache? Neither. Right? Nothing isn't too impossible for the Lord. Nothing is too wondrous for the Lord. But the things that God knows and the things that God understands and the miracles that God performs can often be too wondrous for us to comprehend, which is why we often think they're not going to happen. But it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, but if we are faithless, guess what? He remains faithful. So regardless of Sarah's thoughts toward this whole idea of the promise of a son, God cannot deny himself. He made a covenant, and he'll uphold the covenant. He made a promise, and he'll fulfill his promise. And he's going to come back, and Sarah's going to have a child. And God calls her on it. This is why he stopped by. I stopped by to help you grow in your faith, to make you laugh, because you needed to, right? And he, was, and he calls her, I love it, he calls her, why did you laugh? And of course, what's her response? I didn't laugh. That, that wasn't, you can't prove that, right? I didn't do it. How could you have heard me? I didn't do that out loud, did I? Right? Wasn't me. I watched this little video of this cute kid who was probably maybe two years old, couldn't really speak, completely intelligible, right? But... She got caught sneaking into her brother's food or whatever. And her mom said, hey, are you taking some of your brother's food? And this little girl, you know, like this tall, barely, barely able to stand there. I want to need you more, my brother. No. I saw you take your, I want them to know. You know, and this conversation goes on for like 10 minutes. I saw you, your hand. No. I want to need you more, my brother. You know, and it was just going back and forth. It doesn't matter how old you are, right? When someone catches you in a lie, when someone catches you in the sense in your sin, our response is, no, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. I've got it on video. That's not me. You, you, you made that up. That's CGI, right? That's, you know, deep stuff there. You messed with that whole video. That's not me. Our first reaction is often to deny it when confronted with the truth of our sin. I didn't do that. That wasn't me. You can't prove it, Right? I mean, how often do the words out of our mouth differ from the words spoken by our hearts? Even if Sarah had said with her mouth, okay, her heart said something entirely different, and God called her on it. In this case, she didn't speak anything out loud at all. 
She left it to herself in her heart. Ha ha, that's ridiculous. Not going to happen. We're too old. And God said, why did you laugh about that? James tells us that no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. Jesus said that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, but the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Our heart says a lot about how we feel about things, right? We're told that with our mouths we often bless, but with our hearts we curse, right? The words we speak, the thoughts we think are a product of what lies within our hearts, and our hearts, as the Bible tells us, are deceitful, right? So word of caution, right? It's a word of caution. Hashtag check your heart, right? You need the Holy Spirit to speak, Right, to examine your heart, to temper your words with grace, to help you speak the truth in love. It's a hard lesson to learn, especially for kids who often speak first without thinking. You know, They're blatantly honest sometimes to the detriment of who they're talking to. They don't have that maturity yet, but what sometimes I feel like we don't get that even when we grow up. We still just spew out stuff without thinking about what we're saying. And sometimes we just try to to make it all sound good, but the Lord's like, no, you know what? Why did you say that? I didn't say that. No, your heart said that. Your heart said that, and I heard it. Why? Right? Listen, we need to be reminded that the Lord sees and hears all, spoken or unspoken. All. And how would we live our lives differently if we were reminded of that daily? If the Lord stopped by every day and was like, Why did you say that? I just want to ask you a question. Why did you say that? I'm here to ask, why? I didn't say that. No, you can't argue with me. I'm God. I heard everything. Why did you say that? We would have no excuse. Because I'm stupid, right? Because I don't believe, right? The attitude of our heart is important to the Lord. Which is why, as it tells us in Psalm 37, to delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What should our desires be? The Lord. That's what our desires should be. We need to have the word of God in our heart so that we don't laugh in unbelief. Right? We need the word of God to guard our heart so that we don't laugh in unbelief. So that we live an expectant life awaiting God's promises, believing God's promises. And understanding that they will be fulfilled and not thinking that they're just not going to happen. Right? Sarah's cynical laughter, guess what? It's going to turn into joyous laughter. But it took the Lord to change it. Right? Because Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So since we know that, we know that the attitude of her heart changed. But it took the Lord to change it, obviously. It took for him to show up and address it. It took for him to show up and make her laugh, for it to change. Right? And not to get too far ahead, spoiler alert, but when she gives birth to Isaac, she says, God has made me laughter. Right? God has made laughter for me, as it says in some translations. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She's not saying that negatively. Right? She's saying that joyfully. So she, her laughter does change. 
the thoughts of our heart do change, but it took the Lord. So the seeds of faith, of laughter, you might say, right, that the Lord planted do indeed grow into fruition for Sarah. Because why? Because nothing is too hard for the Lord, right? So we're going to end with this. When I, when I think of this, I'm reminded of the parable in uh, Matthew 19, the rich young man who was basically following the law almost perfectly. But, I mean, Jesus, he was like, what do I need to do? And Jesus listed a bunch of things. He's like, I've done all those, right? I do all those really good. What else should I do? He goes, well, you're wealthy. Give away all your money to the poor, right? If, If you would be perfect, he says, sell what you possess, give it to the poor so that you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And what does it say the rich young man did? Did exactly what Jesus said? No, right? He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He left sorrowful. He left sad because he had so much wealth he couldn't abandon it. He didn't, couldn't leave it. He couldn't give it to the poor. And so when, when the disciples see this, Jesus turns to them and he says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard that, their response was, well, then who can be saved? As in, there's no hope for anybody then, right? But Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Why did they say that? Because even back in Jesus' day, wealth was seen as a proof of God's approval, right? The prosperity gospel was around even back then. There's nothing new under the sun, right? The rabbis taught that rich people were blessed by God, and therefore they, had the, they were the most likely candidates to go to heaven, to go into the presence of God, to go to the kingdom of God. However, what Jesus tells his disciples destroys that whole idea, which is why the disciples were like, what? What hope is there for anyone then, right? Jesus says it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Your wealth, your works, they can't save you. They're not going to gain you admission to heaven. You can't buy a ticket that way. I mean, it was such a prevalent notion in the culture and still is today, unfortunately, that the disciples were astonished, right? They felt all hope was lost. Their jaws were firmly on the floor when Jesus states that, right? Well, who then can be saved? I mean, that's their response, right? Well, we're toast, right? We're toast. I mean, if the rich aren't going to make it, then what help is there for us? What hope is there for us poor folk, right? What chance do we have? Is there no hope for us at all, Jesus? Is there no hope for us? And Jesus' answer, as we just went through there, is basically the same thing that he said to Sarah. It's basically the same words. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, right? He basically told them, is anything too difficult? Is anything too hard? Is anything too wondrous for the Lord? No, nothing is. And so I ask you, Is anything too difficult for God? In your life, is there anything that you think is too difficult for God? Right? No, there isn't. You might think there is, 
you might think that you've reached that mountain or that hill or that wall or that door or whatever it is that you just seemingly can't get over, can't get through, can't climb over, can't cross, whatever it is. This isn't too impossible. But God says, is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too difficult for me? No. Why? Because God specializes in the impossible. Right? And he himself is wonderful. And he makes all things possible. He who created all things, he who upholds the universe by the word of his power, surely can handle anything that you throw at him. Anything. Any doubts, any unbelief, anything that you have, he can handle it. He can handle it. Anything. The Lord works through our doubts. He works through our setbacks. He works through our discouragement. And he gives us hope. Be reminded of the one who is hope. Living hope. Jesus. Leave your human expectations at the tent door. Rush to Jesus. Come to the Lord. Because our perspective of expectancy should never rely on what we can do or how hard things are for us. But our outlook must be changed and it should rely entirely on Jesus and his promises. So come to the Lord with an expectant heart, right? Be expectant because nothing is too hard, nothing is too impossible, nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you just work this out in us. I pray, Lord, that you just remind us of this. I pray, Lord, even if you have to show up physically in front of us and call us out on the carpet and say, why did you say that? Why did you laugh? What is your unbelief? Do it so that we can understand that nothing is too impossible for you. I thank you, Lord, for how much you care for us that you do just that, that you do just like what you did with Sarah. You come and you show up at our house, at our place of residence in our life, and you say, I'm here to grow you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you take that next step. I'm here to help you believe because I care for you and I love you. And nothing is too impossible or too hard or too difficult or too wondrous for me. I thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the strength and the power of your word. I pray, Lord, that you just help us continue to be a light and continue to point people to Jesus and continue to share the love that you have given us, the joy and the hope and the peace that you have given us. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.